0: Chapter 5. The Whirlwind Campaign in Mariposa It was Mullen, the banker, who told Mariposa all about the plan of a whirlwind campaign, and explained how it was to be done. He'd happened to be in one of the big cities when they were raising money by a whirlwind campaign for one of the universities, and he saw it all. He said he would never forget the scene on the last day of it, when the announcement was made that the total of the money raised was even more than what was needed. It was a splendid sight. The businessmen of the town all cheering and laughing and shaking hands, and the professors with the tears streaming down their faces, and the deans of the faculties who had given money themselves sobbing aloud. He said it was the most moving thing he ever saw. So as I said, Henry Mullins, who had seen it, Explained to the others how it was done. He said that first of all, a few of the businessmen got together quietly, very quietly. Indeed, the more quietly, the better, and talked things over. Perhaps one of them would dine, just quietly, with another one, and discuss the situation. Then these two would invite a third, and possibly even a fourth, to have lunch with them and talk in a general way even talk of other things part of the time, and so on. In this way, things would be discussed and looked at in different lights and viewed from different angles, and then, when everything was ready, they would go at things with a rush. A central committee would be formed and subcommittees with captains of each group and recorders and secretaries, and on a stated day, the whirlwind campaign would begin. Each day, the crowd would all agree to meet at some stated place and eat lunch together, say, at a restaurant, or at a club, or at some eating place. This would go on every day, with the interest getting keener and keener, and everybody getting more and more excited. Till presently, the chairman would announce that the campaign had succeeded, and there would be the kind of scene that Mullins had described. So that was the plan that they set in motion in Mariposa. I don't wish to say too much about the whirlwind campaign itself. I don't mean to say that it was a failure. On the contrary, in many ways it couldn't have been a greater success, and yet somehow it didn't seem to work out just as Henry Mullins had said it would. It may be that there are differences between Mariposa and the larger cities that one doesn't appreciate at first sight. Perhaps it would have been better to try some other plan. Yet they followed along the usual line of things closely enough. They began with the regular system of some of the businessmen getting together in a quiet way. First of all, for example, Henry Mullins came over quietly to Duff's rooms over the commercial bank with a bottle of rye whiskey and they talked things over. And the night after that, George Duff came over quietly to Mullins' rooms over the exchange bank with a bottle of scotch whiskey. A few evenings after that, Mullins and Duff went together, in a very unostentatious way, with perhaps a couple of bottles of rye, to Pete Glover's room over the hardware store. And then all three of them went up one night with Ed Moore, the photographer, to judge Pepperley's house under pretense of having a game of poker. The very day after that, Mullins and Duff and Ed Moore and Pete Glover and the judge got Will Harrison, the harness-maker, to go out without any formality on the lake on the pretext of fishing. And the next night after that, Duff and Mullins and Ed Moore and Pete Glover and Pepperly and Will Harrison got Alf Trelawney, the postmaster, to come over just in a casual way to the Mariposa house after the night mail, and the next day, Mullins and Duff and... But, pshaw, you, you see at once how the thing has worked. There's no need to follow that part of the whirlwind campaign further. But it just shows the power of organization. And all this time, mind you, they were talking things over and looking at things first in one light and then in another light. In fact, just doing as the big city men do when there's an important thing like this underway. So after things had been got pretty well into shape in this way, Duff asked Mullins one night, straight out, if he would be chairman of the Central Committee. He sprung it on him, and Mullins had no time to refuse, but he put it to Duff straight whether he would be treasurer. And Duff had no time to refuse. That gave things a start, and within a week they had the whole organization on foot. There was the Grand Central Committee and six groups or subcommittees of twenty men each, and a captain for every group. They had it all arranged on the lines most likely to be effective. In one group there were all the bankers, Mullins and Duff and Pupkin, with the cameo pen, and about four others. They had their photographs taken at Edmore studio, taken in a line with a background of icebergs, a winter scene, and a pretty penetrating crowd they looked, I can tell you. After all, you know, If you get a crowd of representative bank men together in any financial deal, you've got a pretty considerable leverage right away. In the second group were the lawyers, Nivens and McCartney and the rest, about as level-headed a lot as you'd see anywhere. Get the lawyers of a town with you on a thing like this, and you'll find you've got a sort of brain power with you that you'd never get without them. Then there were the businessmen. There was a solid crowd for you. Harrison, the harness maker, and Glover, the hardware man, and all that gang. Not talkers, perhaps, but solid men who can tell you to a nicety how many cents there are in a dollar. It's all right to talk about education and that sort of thing. But if you want driving power and efficiency, get businessmen. They're seeing it every day in the city, and it's just the same in Mariposa. Why, in the big concerns in the city, if they found out a man was educated... They wouldn't have him, wouldn't keep him there a minute. That's why the businessmen have to conceal it so much. Then in the other teams there were the doctors and the newspaper men, and the professional men like Judge Pepperley and Yodel the auctioneer. It was all organized so that every team had its headquarters, two of them in each of the three hotels, one upstairs and one down. And it was arranged that there would be a big lunch every day to be held in Smith's calf round the corner of Smith's Northern Health Resort and home of the Wissanati Angler. You know the place. A lunch was divided up into tables with a captain for each table to see about things to drink. And, of course, all the tables were in competition with one another. In fact, the competition was the very life of the whole thing. It's just wonderful how these things run when they're organized. Take the first luncheon, for example. There they all were, every man in his place, every captain at his post, at the top of the table. It was hard, perhaps, for some of them to get there. They had very likely to be in their stores and banks and offices till the last minute, and then make a dash for it. It was the cleanest piece of teamwork you ever saw. You have noticed already, I am sure, that a good many of the captains and committee men didn't belong to the Church of England church. Glover, for instance, was a Presbyterian, till they ran the picket fence of the manse two feet onto his property, and after that he became a free thinker. But in Mariposa, as I have said, everybody likes to be in everything, and naturally a whirlwind campaign was a novelty. Anyway, it would have been a poor business to keep a man out of the lunches merely on account of his religion. I trust that the day for that kind of religious bigotry is past." Of course, the excitement was when Henry Mullins, at the head of the table, began reading out the telegrams and letters and messages. First of all, there was a telegram of good wishes from the Anglican Lord Bishop of the Diocese to Henry Mullins and calling him dear brother in grace. The Mariposa telegraph is a little unreliable, and it read, Dear Brother in Greece, but that was good enough. The bishop said that his most earnest wishes were with them. Then Mullins read a letter from the mayor of Mariposa, Pete Glover was mayor that year, stating that his keenest desires were with them. And then one from the carriage company, saying that its heartiest goodwill was all theirs. And then one from the meat works, saying that its nearest thoughts were next to them. Then he read one from himself, as head of the exchange bank, you understand, informing him that he had heard of this project and was assuring him of his liveliest interest in what he proposed. At each of these telegrams and messages there was round after round of applause so that you could hardly hear yourself speak or give an order. But that was nothing, too, when Mullins got up again and beat on the table for silence and made one of those crackling speeches, just the way businessmen speak, the kind of speech that a college man simply can't make. I wish I could repeat it all. I remember that it began. Now, boys, you know what we're here for, gentlemen. And it went on just as good as that all through. When Mullins had done, he took out a fountain pen and wrote out a check for $100, conditional on the fund reaching 50000 And there was a burst of cheers all over the room. Just the moment he had done it, up sprang George Duff. You know the keen competition there is. As a straight matter of business between the banks in Mariposa, up sprang George Duff, I say, and wrote out a check for another hundred, conditional on the fund reaching seventy thousand. You never heard such cheering in your life. And then, when Netley walked up to the head of the table and laid down a check for a hundred dollars, conditional on the fund reaching one hundred thousand, the room was in an uproar. A hundred thousand dollars! Just think of it, the figure's fairly sticker one. To think of a hundred thousand dollars raised in five minutes in a little place like Mariposa. And even that was nothing. In less than no time there was such a crowd round Mullins trying to borrow his pen all at once that his waistcoat was all stained with ink. Finally, when they got order at last and Mullins stood up and announced that the conditional fund had reached a quarter of a million. The whole place was a perfect babble of cheering. Oh, these whirlwind campaigns are wonderful things. I can tell you the committee felt pretty proud that first day. There was Henry Mullins looking a little bit flushed and excited with his white waistcoat and an American beauty rose and with ink marks all over him from the check signing. And he kept telling them that he'd known all along that all that was needed was to get the thing started. And telling again about what he'd seen at the university campaign and about the professor's crying and wondering if the high school teachers would come down for the last day of the meetings. Looking back on the Mariposa whirlwind, I could never feel that it was a failure. After all, there is a sympathy and a brotherhood in these things when men work shoulder to shoulder. If you had seen the canvassers of the committee going round the town that evening, shoulder to shoulder, from the Mariposa House to the Continental and up to Mullins' rooms and over to Duff's, shoulder to shoulder, you'd have understood it. I don't say that every lunch was quite such a success at the first. It's not always easy to get out of the store if you're a busy man. And a good many of the whirlwind committee found that they had just time to hurry down and snatch their lunch and get back again. Still, they came and snatched it. As long as the lunches lasted, they came. Even if they had simply to rush it and grab something to eat and drink without time to talk to anybody, they came. No, no, it was not lack of enthusiasm that killed the whirlwind campaign in Mariposa. It must have been something else. I don't just know what it was, but I think it had something to do with the financial... The bookkeeping side of the thing. It may have been too that the organization was not quite correctly planned. You see, if practically everybody's on the committees, it is awfully hard to try to find men to canvass. And it is not allowable for the captains and the committee men to canvass one another because their gifts are spontaneous. So the only thing that the different groups could do was to wait around in some likely place, say, the bar parlor of Smith's Hotel, in the hope that somebody might come in who could be canvassed. You might ask why they didn't canvass Mr. Smith himself. But, of course, they had done that at the very start, as I should have said. Mr. Smith had given them $200 in cash conditional on the lunches being held in the calf of his hotel, and it's awfully hard to get a proper lunch. I mean the kind to which a bishop can express regret at not being there. Under $1. twenty-five. So Mr. Smith got back his own money, and the crowd began eating into the benefactions, and it got more and more complicated whether to hold another lunch in the hope of breaking even or to stop the campaign. It was disappointing, yes. In spite of the success and the sympathy, it was disappointing. I don't say it didn't do good, No doubt a lot of the men got to know one another better than ever they had before. I have myself heard Judge Pepperly say that after the campaign, he knew all of Pete Glover that he wanted to. There was a lot of that kind of complete satiety. The real trouble about the Whirlwind campaign was that they never clearly understood which of them were the Whirlwind and who were to be the campaign. Some of them, I believe, took it pretty much to heart. I know that Henry Mullins did. You could see it. The first day he came down to the lunch all dressed up with the American beauty and the white waistcoat. The second day he only wore a pink carnation and a gray waistcoat. The third day he had on a dead daffodil and a cardigan undervest. And on the last day, when the high school teachers should have been there, he only wore his office suit and he hadn't even shaved. He looked beaten. It was that night that he went up to the rectory to tell the news to Dean Drone. It had been arranged, you know, that the rector should not attend the lunches, so as to let the whole thing come as a surprise, so that all he knew about it was scraps of information about the crowds at the lunch and how they cheered and all of that. Once, I believe, he caught sight of the news packet with a two-inch headline, A QUARTER OF A MILLION! But he wouldn't let himself read further because it would have spoilt the surprise. I saw Mullins, as I say, go up the street on his way to Dean Dron's. It was middle April and there was ragged snow on the streets and the nights were dark still and cold. I saw Mullins grit his teeth as he walked and I know that he held in his coat pocket his own check for the hundred with the condition taken off it and he said that there were so many skunks in Mariposa that a man might as well be in the head office in the city. The dean came out at a little gate in the dark You could see the lamplight behind him from the open door of the rectory, and he shook hands with Mullins, and they went in together. We are always on the hunt for great stories like these to feature on the show. Send your suggestions to bigvoicej at gmail.com. We've got a YouTube channel full of stories from the show. Go to tiny.cc slash bvjbedtime. Remember to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps to spread the word that we're putting people to sleep every single night. And if you find value in the show, there's a Buy Me A Coffee link on every post. We have over 360 episodes. Be sure to check them all out at BedtimeWithBVJ.com. Thank you so much for listening. Good night. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this (laughs) program.